So, now look, what are we going to do this morning? Well, we are going to pick up from where Ian left off last week. Here's a little test. Who are we talking about last week? Jacob. Very good. Well done. <laughs> that's a relief that you remember, to be honest. That's really, really good. Now look, uh, Jacob is one of these foundational characters uh, that actually we really do need to be quite familiar with. Um, <clears throat> we need to understand uh, you know, the, the events uh, of his life, and we also need to be aware of the characters, particularly his granddad, who was Abraham, that's right. And we also need to be aware of his kids, uh, the 12 kids, because they are the 12 patriarchs of Israel. So Jacob's quite a key um, thing to understand. And also, when you, uh, you need to understand something of Jacob also to understand other parts of the Bible. Because uh, as we go through the rest of the Bible, you will see Jacob referenced. So you see the prophet Isaiah talking to the people of Israel, and he says, O house of Jacob. And of course, so he's, he's, he's talking about this guy. And even when you come into the New Testament, you will see at least 25 references to the name of Jacob. So um, it's really important, therefore, that we have a good grasp of some of these foundational characters. That's really important for us, particularly if you're new uh, to the Bible. Now, um, uh, talking with Ian this week, I just thought we were having this conversation, and I just thought in the light of that, I, I am aware that there are some people here, you know your Bible reasonably well, you studied these stories and you're familiar with them. But I'm also aware that there are other people here, who you are relatively new to the faith, or you do not know these stories. And uh, we were just talking about the importance of these foundational stories, really, and knowing them. So I came to the conclusion, what I'd like to do this morning is I'm going to spend 20 minutes this morning telling you the story of Jacob. I'm going to go through his life. And it is quite a life. I'm not going to be able to go through the whole of his life. I'm not going to do the raising of these 12 boys, which is a whole separate story in itself. And that's, you know, all sorts of things go on with that. And then, so I'm going to do that, and then for the remainder of the time, there is an episode, there's a, an event that happens in Jacob's life that is, frankly, a bit weird. It's a bit weird. And I just think we need to have a good look at that episode, okay? So it's going to be half and half. We're going to look at the life of Jacob, and then we're going to look at this particular episode. Okay? Are you all right with that? Just as well, because that's what we're doing. <laughs> Lovely. <clears throat> Good. Okay. So, are you ready? You're buckled up, got your popcorn out. Here we go. We are going to look at the life of Jacob. Okay, so Jacob then is born as the second son to uh, his mum and dad, uh, Isaac and Rebecca. And as we've mentioned, he is the uh, grandson of the famous Abraham. And as we heard last week, he has a brother called Esau. And um, we saw that these two boys are very, very different. Esau, as Ian pointed out last week, means hairy. Not a great name, I should imagine. But anyway, that's what he was called, hairy. And he was a hunter, outdoorsy kind of guy. He was a rugged bloke, captain of the rugby team sort of bloke. I think that's, that's who we've got there. Uh, and he was loved and actually, frankly, favored by his dad, you do see the favoritism that goes on so unhelpfully in this family. And his dad favors Esau. Jacob, however, means what? Grabber or cheat. Cheat. And he was much more of a stay-at-home kind of guy. 
And uh, he is very much loved by his mum. There's real favoritism uh, towards her, towards him. Then as time goes on, what do we see? Well, we see Isaac beginning to lose his sight. He really struggles with sight. And he decides at this point that the time has come to pass on the family blessing. Now, we just need to pause a little bit at that point because we might not quite get this in our culture today. But it's important for us to understand this family blessing that is about to be handed on is an important thing. It's not a token. All right? It's a real thing. The Bible makes that very clear. It has spiritual meaning. It means whoever gets this blessing is going to get the favor of God poured out on them. And not only them, but also their family line. So it's a big thing. Okay? The, the family blessing. It really means something. Now, usually, this family blessing would have come to the older brother. That was the tradition of the day. But God has stepped in quite early on with the birth of these two boys. And he said, in this case, I'm going to flip that on its head. And the blessing is actually going to come to the younger brother. It's going to come uh, to Jacob. He is going to be the favored son. And he said, the older brother will end up serving the younger brother. That's what he says. So it's quite unusual uh, in this situation. Now, also, as Ian mentioned last week, we saw this incident a few years earlier where uh, Esau is out hunting and uh, he is uh, doing his stuff and he comes in and he is ravenous. Okay, I, I, I know what it's like when somebody's played a game of rugby. They come in, for, for what they want to do is eat. And here is Esau. He is absolutely starving. And uh, Jacob has just made a stew, and Ian pointed out last week that it was a lentil stew, which I don't think went down well with Ian. Uh, but there it was, that was the lentil stew. And uh, uh, Esau basically says to him, give me this stew. And Jacob says, I'll swap it for the birthright. Now birthright, of course, means the right to get the blessing of God on his life. And in a very bad decision, in a quick moment, Esau says, yeah, yeah, okay. And so Jacob uh, gets uh, the blessing, or at least gets the right to it. So the day comes then, Isaac is now blind, and he's going to pass on this blessing. And uh, <clears throat> rather than trust God to do what he said he is going to actually do, Jacob and his mum, Rebecca, decide they are going to cook up their own plan to make sure that Jacob gets this blessing. They're not going to trust God for this, and they're going to do it themselves. So while Esau is out hunting, Rebekah makes a stew, and she dresses Jacob up in these hairy skins, because Jacob's quite a smooth bloke, really. Yeah, he is, okay, he's smooth. And so she puts these skins on him, so that the blind Isaac, when he reaches out and touches his son, will say, oh, hang on a minute, this must be Esau. That's the, that's the ruse. That's what they're hoping for. So Jacob really here is living up to his name. He is the cheat. And here he is cooking up this plan with his mum to cheat his dad and cheat his brother. Just worth stopping here very briefly. If you are new to the Bible, it's important to notice that names in the Bible are very significant. They really mean something. So we've seen already that Esau means something. Jacob means something. Jesus means something as well. It means uh, rescuer or deliverer. It means Yahweh is salvation. 
So it's important for us to recognize when you're reading the Bible, you come across somebody's name to find out what it means because it's very significant when you're reading, okay? It helps you understand uh, the word of God. Right, so back to Esau. Esau comes in from his hunting and he discovers what's happened and he is furious. In fact, he is incandescent with rage to the point where he says, I'm going to get that scrawny brother of mine and I'm going to kill him. Not very nice, but anyway, there you are. And uh, that's what he decides to do. Now, uh, uh, Jacob then is advised very quickly by mum and dad, hey, boy, you better get out of here. This is not a safe place for you to be around because your big brother, if he gets his hands on you, I think he really will kill you. So they say, why don't you go off to your uncle Laban's? Dear old uncle Laban. So he flees. Jacob just runs. And then on the way, he has this extraordinary dream. Have you read about his dream? And he dreams about a ladder or some steps. And they go from heaven, sorry, from earth to heaven. And there are angels going up and down these steps or this ladder. And God then speaks to Jacob. And he says this, all the things that I have promised your granddad that about this land, you need to know they apply to you. And he repeats, really, the promises that he's made to uh, Abraham. And uh, it seems that this is possibly one of the first sort of spiritual experiences that Jacob has. And he's a bit freaked out by this dream. He wakes up and he says, oh, oh dear. He's frightened by it. And he says, oh, well, this must be the gateway to heaven or something. He gets a bit religious, really, because he doesn't quite know, I think, what's going on. And um, anyway... He has this extraordinary experience. And I think what we take from that is that God is beginning to break into this man's life. God is beginning to make himself known to a guy that currently does not know him. And actually, when you look at the life of Jacob, one of the themes I think we could take from that is that here is a man who encounters God on a consistent basis. And God changes him through encounter with himself. He has some radical encounters with God. And he goes, talk about, talk about the theme of this morning's worship, grace. God pouring out his grace on those who do not deserve it. Jacob is an absolute example of that. Here is a cheat. Here is a man who does not deserve the goodness of God. And yet look what God is doing, breaking into his life. Right, so Jacob's on the run. Eventually, he arrives at Uncle Laban's house. And uh, he starts to work for the family business, uh, and that's sheep. That's what uh, Uncle Laban does. So he becomes a shepherd. He's out there in the fields looking after them. He also happens to notice that Jacob has a very, very good-looking daughter, second daughter, by the name of Rachel. Very good name. And he is falls so in love with her that he decides, says, look, I am so determined to marry her. He says to Laban, I will give you seven years of work if you agree uh, to let her marry me. And uh, I think most of the commentators will say, even though he didn't have a dowry to give, that's still an enormous sum of uh, money that effectively he's offering. So in other words, he's saying, I am really, really determined that this gorgeous woman should be my wife. 
And uh, so Laban says, yep, fine, I agree to that. But on the marriage day, after seven years, by the way, the Bible says he was so in love, these seven years whistle by as though they're nothing. It's quite unusual, that kind of language in the scriptures, but there it is, just tells you something about he's absolutely, oh, this woman is amazing. Anyway, he gets there seven years later, and Uncle Laban, turns out, he's a bit more tricky than we had first thought. Because Uncle Laban does the dirty uh, on uh, Jacob. I'm not quite sure how he manages to achieve this, but he does. And he, he, instead of marrying Rachel, he marries the elder daughter, Leah, who is definitely not as good-looking as Rachel is. And I'm not quite sure how the marriage thing works here, but what it's, the Bible says is, in the morning, in the morning, Jacob noticed that he had married Leah. I think much wine was had by many. <laughs> you have to say it's a tad careless, isn't it, not to notice who you've married. <clears throat> Still, never mind, there we are. So he wakes up and thinks, well, what? So he says to Laban, what's going on here, basically? And Laban says, well, he says, look, you know, it's just not our custom. We always marry the elder uh, 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 daughter first, and then, and then the, the younger daughter can get married. That's just the way it works around here. And Jacob, but he said, if you work another seven years for me, then you can marry Rachel. Hey! And Jacob agrees. He agrees to this. I, I mean, talk about... He's being ripped off here. He's being tricked. Interesting. The cheat is being cheated. It's almost the other side to the same coin, I suspect. Here is the cheat now being cheated. So he works another seven years. And uh, then the day comes for the wedding, and he marries Rachel. I'm sure he checked a little bit more carefully who he was actually marrying this time. Uh, but he marries her. And then suddenly, here is this man, and he has got two wives, Leah and Rachel. And actually, on the marriage of the second, a second wife, the Bible indicates some of the difficulties and jealousies that can arise from one man having multiple wives. So it was pretty common practice back then. That wasn't, you know, that unusual. Uh, uh, but even here, the Bible is revealing, you know, this is not a good idea. And it, it tells you that through the implication. <laughs> and now we go through what happened. And what we see is we see, a, see Leah locked in a loveless marriage. In fact, the Bible says she was hated Jacob, therefore, presumably, hated Leah. And she's married to this guy. Anyway, she tries hard to win Jacob's love. And she does this by being a great wife. And back then, that meant having lots of children. So she has children. And every time she has a child, she's thinking, this time, that will convince him how much I love him and how much surely he will fall in love with me. But it doesn't happen. He doesn't fall in love with her. Now, Leah is having lots of children. And this, actually, is really affecting Rachel, the second wife. Because she is unable to produce children. And I think, suspect for the first time in her life, she is super jealous of her older sister. And um, she, um, she's turned inside out, really. And uh, she is so desperate to have children that she says to her husband, Jacob, Jacob, I want you to sleep with my maidservant, Bilhah, 
and we will have children through her. So she will have the children, but I'll raise them as my own. Now, again, this was a fairly common practice uh, in this situation back then. And Bilhar ends up having two kids, which Rachel raises as her own. And on the birth of the second kid, I think something of Rachel's heart is revealed. Because she says this, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. It's all about jealousy, this, isn't it? Jealousy, rivalry. We see the kind of bitterness of that going on. I'll tell you what, EastEnders has got nothing on this, has it? Nothing on this. This is extraordinary. So um, she then has these two kids. On the birth of the second kid, then Leah kicks off about this. And, and she says, well, look, two can play at that game. So she has a word with Jacob. And she said, you need to sleep with my maidservant, a lass called uh, Zilpah. And then she has two kids. And then um, uh, uh, Leah has another child herself. So it's a bit like her saying, well, Rachel, you can only produce from one. But we, I, can produce from two. So no, 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 seems to be what's going on. Anyway, after all of this, God is merciful to Rachel, and he hears her cry, and then she herself produces a child, and she gives birth to Joseph, which makes Andrew Lloyd Webber very happy. <laughs> so there is Joseph. Now, during this time, uh, God is also, I mean, there's more, <laughs> we haven't finished yet. It gets way more complicated. Do you see how mucky this is? Do you see how dreadful some of these folk are and what's going on? These are the people that God chooses to use. Grace of God. Grace of God. Anyway, during this time, God blesses uh, Jacob. Now, wherever Jacob goes, he causes Laban's flocks and herds to do really, really well. And um, uh, while Uncle Label understands that God's blessing is being poured out on Jacob, and therefore his flocks and herds are doing very well, he understands that, uh, he's also been treating Jacob very badly. He's been cheating him, and uh, he has basically been changing his wages all the time. And if there are any deaths in the flock, he makes Jacob pay out of his own pocket for that. Really unreasonable treatment uh, he's been given. We also read that Uncle Laban is into divination, witchcraft. Bit of that on the side. We're finding out a little bit about Uncle Laban, aren't we? Anyway, there you go. Despite all of this, God shows Jacob how to do well in business and how to prosper himself. Which animals are going to do well? And he enables him to uh, end up owning some of them. And by the time we get to about chapter 32, we discover Jacob has become a very, very wealthy man. He's got hundreds of sheep and goats and donkeys and all sorts of things. He is now very very wealthy despite his uncle and in fact if anything he's starting to do better than Laban and therefore Laban's family get a bit shirty about that and say mm -hmm, it's because you've nicked all our dad's stuff and um, what happens then oh yes then God speaks to him and says okay Jacob it's time now for you to go home I want you to go back to your uh, mum and dad's now, this is difficult because uh, Jacob's a bit nervous of how Laban's going to react. In fact, he thinks what Laban's going to do is try and get hold of his two daughters and stop them from going. They're obviously Jacob's wives. So what he does, he sneaks off. He does a runner, basically. He just runs. He gathers everything he's got, and he goes. 
And after about three days, Laban notices. He says, hang on a minute, where are they all gone? So he gathers all of his kinsfolk, it says, and they charge after him. And after seven days, he catches up. And there is a bit of a... And you think, oh, oh, what's going to go on here? Well, God has had to warn Laban. And he says, don't you touch my boy Jacob, basically. That's what he says. Don't you touch him. Nothing good or bad, please. So uh, Laban is a little bit okay. But but, uh, Laban basically accuses Jacob of trying to steal stuff. And then all these years, 20 years of working for Laban, come out, all the frustration pours out. And he says, you've been a rotten boss. Blooming awful. Hate you. And anyway, they have this sort of ding-dong, and eventually they leave it in a kind of okay situation. They agree that they'll go their separate ways. They agree they're not going to attack and kill each other. Well, that's good. And uh, they, they move on. Now, Jacob now, having sorted that one out, has another big hurdle. He now has to return home. And that, of course, means facing his brother. And Jacob is still extremely frightened. Are you with me, by the way? Yeah? Jacob is still extremely frightened that uh, Esau is as angry as the day when he left. So he thinks, what I'll do is I'll get a bunch of my servants. I don't want to shock him, you know, just by rocking up and saying, hi, I'm back. He's, he wants to say, no, no, I'll, I'll send a bunch of my servants to tell him that I'm coming. Maybe that will sort of reduce the shock of it a bit. And uh, so he sends them off. They, they meet up with Esau and they come back and they say, yeah, we met up with Esau and we told him you're coming and he's coming out to meet you. Oh, and by the way, he's bringing 400 of his guys with him. So, so Jacob's anxiety levels, I mean, talk about blood pressure, would just go through the roof. Wow, man, he, oh, what's going to happen? He's convinced that uh, Esau is going to absolutely kill him, basically, and wipe out his whole family. So he thinks, right, so he's panicking now. He's full of anxiety. And he thinks, right, what can I do? So he thinks, I'm going to give him the biggest present he's ever had. And he gets hundreds of donkeys and sheep and goats. That's very definitely the kind of commodity back then. And with, you know, all sorts of camels. And it's enormous when you read about it. It's an enormous gift. And this is all designed just to calm his brother down. He sends it out ahead with some servants. And uh, he kind of thinks, right, well, that will just calm this angry man down. And hopefully he won't kill me. Then we come into this weird scripture that I told you about earlier. This weird thing happens. Because we have a situation where Jacob has sent everyone away. He's in the desert on his own. Totally now, he spends the night alone. All the distractions of his life have gone. And now I'd like to read you this passage of scripture. Genesis 32 says this. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? 
And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face uh, God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now, if you are new to the Bible, and that's the first time you come across that, I think you would be within your rights to say, what on earth is going on? I mean, just a few questions probably would come across your mind. See, we've become familiar with this, so the oddity of it has sort of dimmed down a bit, hasn't it? But this is odd. I mean, there are all sorts of questions. I think, you know, you know where does this man suddenly come from? Why are they wrestling? What's the wrestle about? What, what, what? I mean, do they do this? Is this a thing? I don't think it's a thing, but anyway, they're doing it. And why, if this man is actually God, which is, seems to be what this passage implies, why is he unable to prevail against Jacob? You would think if God was having a wrestling match, it would go like this. Ready, steady, go. Boom. Oh, you've won. But no, it doesn't. So what's that about? Why doesn't this man tell him his name? Why doesn't he do that? And, and then why is Jacob able to see God's face and live? You know, we're going to come across Moses in a little bit. And Moses is going to ask the same thing. Can I see your glory? And God's going to say, you can see my back, but you cannot see my face. Because if you see my face, you'll die. So why is Jacob given a special pass here? How come Jacob gets to see his face? And then why does he break his hip? I mean, that's not very nice. God's God. He's good. Hello. Bang. Oh, what? And then, for me, the last question I had was this. Why is all of this oddity happening in the hours, arguably, before the most frightening day of Jacob's life? He's going to meet his brother who he thinks is going to kill him. God says, oh, that's the perfect time to speak to you. Hey? Do you see what I mean? You can look at this and forget how odd it is when you get used to it. But those are the sorts of questions I think legitimately you can ask. Well, let's have a look at this passage and see if we can make some sense of it, shall we? I'm not guaranteeing anything, but we'll, we'll have a look. Right, okay. Well, look, I think we are correct in seeing that this is a wrestle between God and Jacob. That is what's going on here. And it seems to me that God has even enabled or even initiated this wrestle. It's God's idea. Because this man not only turns up, but he cooperates in the wrestle. This man who is God, interesting, man who is God, turns up and he starts to wrestle. And the fact that God doesn't instantly just win, like I talked about earlier, tells me something. That God is allowing this wrestle. He wants it. It seems. God is sanctioning this wrestle. In some way, this is serving the purpose of God. Now, Jacob's motivation for wanting the wrestle, I think, becomes clear uh, fairly quickly. Uh, he is urgently wanting God's blessing. He's desperate for it. In fact, he's so desperate for it. I think that, that's clear. God has just knocked his, his hip out. So in other words, Jacob is now in agony. Yet he carries on wrestling. I'm not going to let you go. Ow, ow, ow. He's wrestling through the agony. It tells you something about how desperate Jacob is. I want your blessing. Not, 
you know, I'm not just sort of vaguely interested. I'm, I'm desperate for this thing. And then from the kind of blessing that God gives, it seems pretty clear what Jacob is after. Because God blesses him like this. He says, I am going to give you a fundamental change of identity. I'm going to change you at the heart. And uh, <clears throat> interesting, isn't it? Um, that halfway through, God asks Jacob his name. I was reading one of the uh, commentators on this, really helpful guy. And he was saying, actually, what's going on here? By getting Jacob to say his name, what he's actually doing is getting Jacob to admit to who he is. Because he's saying, yes, I am, Jacob, I am Jacob the cheat. That is who I am. That's what's just happened here. This man has faced up to the reality of his own muck. And therefore, also, faced up to the way he has treated his brother. Kind of helps you to understand why it's happening now. Just before he's about to meet his brother again, God is saying, okay, we'll face the reality of what you've done here. Now, the other thing we just need to say, Jacob the cheat. A cheat would generally be accepted by most people to be a low life. Even amongst non-Christians, you would say, if somebody's a cheat, you'd say, oh, no, no, oh, yuck. Yeah, you agree? You don't, you don't really want to do business with a cheat, do you? Because you think, no, 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 don't like that. But it is God's amazing grace that God agrees to change Jacob. And of course, he goes from Jacob the cheat to Israel, the man who strives with God. That's what Israel means, the man who strives with God. That is a huge change of identity that has just gone on in this man. Israel, uh, the man who strives with God, it could mean this, the man who is engaged with God, the man who is pursuing God, the man who is pressing in to God, the man who wants God. He's gone from cheat to man who has relationship with God. Do you see the radical nature of this change of identity that's just gone on? What does it remind you of? Yourself, I hope. Because that's what happened to us when we became Christians. We were sinners. We were bluntly evil. Frankly, low life. We deserved hell. Hard to admit sometimes when you've been a Christian a long time, you forget. This is how you started. You were a sinner. You were an enemy of God. There was nothing about you. We heard it today. Nothing about you that could say, well, I, I think I've earned my way in here. God looked at you and said, you are worthy of hell. You are a cheat, a low life in my eyes. Yet in his amazing grace, one day, he said, here is Jesus. And you believed in Jesus. And you were transformed at that moment. And your identity was radically shifted to suddenly you are a person now who has relationship with God. You know him. You are now wrapped up with him. You know him. You walk with him. Your identity now is all linked to him and who he is. Suddenly, you were born again. Radical. This is, I've tried to explain. This is a radical shift of identity that occurred in you the moment you believed. Maybe you weren't aware of it. Maybe you thought, well, it's just a nice meeting, really, and I, I believe it. No, no, in the heavenlies, you were radically, radically changed. You are now new creations. 
new creatures in Christ. And I want to say this, there is now no going back. I don't believe you can reverse this process. The old has gone, the new has come. You are in Christ. Now it's interesting as well for me as I've been looking at this, it's interesting isn't it? You could look at Jacob and say, okay, he's had a tough life. You know, some real bad stuff has gone on here. But, but actually, in terms of the world, he's ended up with everything. He is now a very, very wealthy man. He has married the woman of his dreams. And now he has a large family, which particularly back then was a marker of success. So he's done really, really well in wealth, in love, and in family. Aren't those three things that still today we long for? How many people say, well, if only I had a great partner, a great husband or wife, that would, that, that would satisfy my soul. How many of us say, if only I had more money, that would make life so much easier. Or how many people say, if only I had a family around me, I so miss. If I could have that, it would just satisfy me. Jacob was given all three of these things, and yet here is this man crying out, saying, it's not enough. It doesn't satisfy me. Somehow we need to learn that. That these things are good, but they will not satisfy your soul. Okay, why does God break his hip? It's not very nice. Well, what is God doing here? God weakens Jacob. Intentionally. We need just to pay attention to this. God intentionally weakens Jacob. Now, that's not what you would think, is it? God's here to strengthen us and bless us. Do us good, isn't he? Well, he is. Yet in this instance, God weakens Jacob important for us to see Jacob is a really determined guy I think he's not physically strong but he's mentally strong look how determined he is I am going to succeed I'm going to get that woman 14 years of hard graft I'll do it I'm going to get the money he does it I'm going to have a big family he succeeds when he puts his mind to it he has great strength and ability yes God's blessing too but he has put his mind to it <clears throat> But now he has a new identity. And what does the Bible tell us about weakness? This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He's praying and he said, God said this to you. My power is made perfect in weakness. We don't want to hear that, do we? And then he says, I am content with weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong when I am weak then I am strong all the time we do what we naturally want to do which is rely on our own strength to get stuff done we are not relying on God and what God has just done for Jacob is to make him rely on him so that he can see the power and strength of God in his life and not do it on his own and therefore actually see far more let me make a statement here. Weakness to a Christian is actually a friend. <laughs> Woohoo! Great response. Weakness is actually a friend. It means we cannot rely on ourselves. It means we have to learn to lean 
on him. Let me ask you a question. Are you capable? Are you quite a strong person, strong-minded, able to get stuff done? Let me ask you a question. Who are you leaning on? You're leaning on him? Or are you leaning on you? Hey, God wants to say to you, come on, learn to lean on me. Let me finish with this. Scripture tells us that as Christians, we have already been blessed. We looked at Ephesians, didn't we? What does Ephesians say at the beginning? We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. When you became a Christian, you got blessed. Let me say this to you. As a Christian, you do not have to struggle with God for blessing. He has already blessed you. We are holy, we are chosen, we are redeemed, we are predestined, we are adopted in the family. God's grace has been lavished on us. We are sealed in the Holy Spirit. We do not need to wrestle with God for that kind of blessing. However, we do need to be wrestlers. Giant haystacks, here we come. You need to be a wrestler. Ephesians 6 says this, we need to wrestle with the rulers, the principalities of darkness in the heavenly realms. Christians, we need to wrestle. We need to learn to wrestle. And for me, this looks like wrestling in prayer. We've got to be people who learn to wrestle in prayer and not be passive and not say, you know, can't be bothered really. No, God is looking for a group of people who fight, who wrestle, Jesus urged us to be people that persevere in prayer. That means wrestling. We are told to ask, to seek, and to knock. Keep going until that door opens. That's the kind of people that God is looking for from us. The kingdom of God is taken by force of violent men. Spiritually, not physically violent, obviously. Taken by force. Hope Church, let's be wrestlers. Let's learn to wrestle with God. Let's learn to wrestle in prayer. Let's learn to see his favor poured out on the nations. Should we do that? Amen. Let's finish there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a good God. Father, I thank you that you take uh, people who are just rotten, people like Jacob, and somehow you turn them round. You, you change their very identity and you cause them to be great men and women uh, in the kingdom. Father, I'm so grateful that we can look at ourselves and say that is true of us. You took us from nowhere and yet you've made us sons and daughters. Thank you so much. But Father, I want to ask this, that you would teach us how now to wrestle. Show us how to wrestle uh, healthily in prayer. Show us how to be determined. Lord, I pray for a new spirit of, uh, as it were, fighting in prayer to be on us and over us. I pray that we would pray and wrestle for our families, for the church and for this nation at this time. God, we cry out to you. Holy Spirit, do a new thing among us. Let there be a new spirit of wrestling in our hearts with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.